Jamila Gavin is a musician and author who has an Indian father and an English mother. She talks to Michael Barclay about the book she wrote about Thomas Coram, who built the Foundling Hospital for Abandoned Children in London. Jamila Gavin was born in the foothills of the Himalayas. Her Indian father and English mother met as teachers in Iran and married in Mumbai. By the age of 12, she'd lived in an Indian palace in the Punjab, a bungalow in Pune, and a terraced house in Ealing, West London. Ealing was where the family settled in 1953. Jamila went on to study music at London's Trinity College and to become a sound engineer and then a director in television. She didn't start to write until her late 30s, beginning a career distinguished by many awards for her novels, plays and short stories, around 50 books in all. It's a rich world of myths and fairy tales, orphans and adventures, ranging from 15th century Venice to the mountains of India. She's probably best known for Coram Boy, her prize-winning novel, which was adapted for the stage at the National, about the 18th-century foundling hospital of which Handel became a major benefactor. Yes, Handel was a, a wonderful revelation when I was thinking about writing the book Coram Boy. I mean, that in itself was an accident because I heard of a story of Coram men that traffic children and I said, oh, and somebody said that the highways and byways of England were littered with the bones of little children. Well, these were not slave children. These were little British children in an age when if a child was unwanted, they were invariably dumped or trafficked. Uh, so that caught my ear and I immediately began to research Coram and took me to London and the story of Thomas Coram, Captain Thomas Coram in the 18th century, who had said, I got fed up with tripping over the abandoned bodies of little babies in the streets of London. It opened up a world of London to me. I could have said it was the same in India, but Calcutta, but London... So then a story began to um, unfold. And as it unfolded, and I began to learn about all the big people that supported Captain Coram, whose aim was to set up the foundling hospital, Handel was one of them. And for me, as someone who dearly loves music and who never thought I'd ever land up being a writer, it was such an opportunity to explore my love of music, my love of Handel. And fortunately, Melly Still, who is the director of Coram Boy, when it was adapted for the theatre by Helen Edmondson, they hit upon making Handel the music throughout. And I think it was an absolute stroke of genius. And this particular piece from the Messiah, Surely He Hath Borne Our Grief, is very appropriate for some of the very moving and disturbing aspects of what was happening to these children. Very much so. It happens in a poignant scene when even the foundling children, the little girls, were being trafficked through a secret tunnel. And this is being noticed by one of the characters. And Adrian Sutton place this surely surely and you know in opera you look for um, singers who can act and in this play they look for actors who could sing and my goodness I think the performance they did for that scene just makes the hairs on your neck stand up as these little children are herded through the tunnel to a slave ship 
And for that reason, you were particularly keen not to have a performance which sort of skipped lightly, but one which brought out the profundity. Yes, I was amazed, actually, at some of the performances I listened to when choosing for this programme, that they do just skip along and, uh, you know, they're wonderfully sung, but when you think about what the words are saying, the bearing of grief and the um, the bruising, and uh, it's... I just think Charles McCarris gets it with the English Chamber Orchestra as slightly reduced forces, but I think he does get that pounding heartbeat rhythm of surely I love it when they sing the chastisement. I've always loved the way Handel sets words. 
Surely he has borne our grief. Charles McCarris conducting the Ambrosian Singers and the English Chamber Orchestra in music from part two of Handel's Messiah.
Alan Sorensen is Church of Scotland Ministry in Greenock. Alan is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan's given us permission to broadcast some of his shorter God Spots, and today he tells us to lighten up. So how many brain surgeons, nuclear scientists, heads of state do you normally get on a local train? Eh, not a lot. But there must have been some of them on my train yesterday. You see, the train was a couple of minutes late in leaving, and the folk behind me were muttering, grumbling, complaining. It was, for them, the end of the world. They must have had a dying patient at the end of the line, or an imminent nuclear accident, or something like that to deal with. I could see that the delay was actually caused by the staff having great difficulty in getting a profoundly disabled person onto the train. When will we learn that the entire universe is not there simply to serve us? And whatever did we do before we had watches to tell us we were now exactly two minutes late? Come on, lighten up. High speed blessings to you. Doodaloo the new. has a series on Radio 4 called Ramblings, where she explores interesting parts of Scotland's west coast. We hear her now talking to David Alloway, who is a guide round the island of Iona. We've made our way down to the track so we can easily walk three abreast. And David, you mentioned that most of the crofters have a couple of other jobs. Now, you have many jobs, do you not? <laughs> I'm not sure how many I do actually have. But yeah, no, there's, uh, guiding is one of them. I do a lot of maintenance work and building work and uh, refurbishments in the hotels in the winter. I also uh, 
a photographer to trade, so I still keep my hand in that. And that's developed into a little bit of painting as well now. Actually, through last year in lockdown, having the time, I just started developing that, and that's actually grown into something a little bit more now, and, and I'm selling a few, so things are, things have, a positive come out of last year. And I'm also a firefighter as well in the island. And I, I I'm a first responder for the ambulance service as well and various other bits and pieces. So yeah, I, I really like that mix, that sort of, there's not a monotony in it at all. As a guide, not only do you know the topography of the island, you also know its history. And the thing that Iona is most famous for is, is the religious community here. When, when was it founded and who by? That's in Columba. St. Columba, an Irish monk, he set up a monastery in Iona and started to spread Christianity into the whole of north of Britain, really. And that's really the, the reason that the community started here in Iona and, the, and ultimately now the abbey on the same site that he had originally set up his monastery on, which is now run by the building and fabric and things are looked after by Historic Scotland. But the... I own a community, religious community that live within the Abbey itself and run the services in the Abbey and, and that side of, of things in there. They were established in, in 1930. That grew into what's, what the Iona community is now. Are you playing in the open? Yeah. Oh, good luck. Thank you. The golfer just come by on a bicycle. So he's got his golf clubs on his back and he's heading off to play in the open because I'm guessing that's the golf course up ahead of yeah, us. we're just about to hit the golf course, yeah. That little bike that that chap's on looks like it's been dug out of a garage where it may have sat for 50 years. It's covered in rust and it's for a child of about six. And he is not six. <laughs> it's a place with a wonderful character and, and a lot of people talk about the, the, the spiritual um, aura of Iona. What, what do you feel about the place and how would you describe it? Iona's, I think, it's much, it's much older than that. When Columba arrived here, it wasn't an empty landscape. It was a populated landscape with people living here. And the more I walk across it and explore it, I'm realising the one of the things that would I think would draw people here thousands of years ago, 10,000 years ago or so, would be the, the landscape and the, the climate here, actually. I know it's strange saying this today, and there is tiny little patches of blue sky just starting to appear. But it's a much sunnier climate than even Mull. We're surrounded by the, the Gulf Stream. That's like a warm blanket of sea round about us. You know, it still gets cold with wind chill in the winter, but we don't see frost and snow. For its size and scale, it's just another small island in the west coast of Scotland, but it's, it's got such more significance because of Columba, yes. But I think its, it's positioning, its, its geography has a lot to, to bear on that. We've crossed onto the Iona Golf Course. The flags at the gate say 1905 it was established and we can see golfers assembling. And is this Macaire now? Yeah, is that so what this grass we'll is? we pass through that gate and we would yeah. call this the Macaire. It's very, very sandy, so it's, it's, it's almost self-fertilising. Every year the wind blows another layer of sand over it from the beach. And it's shell sand that's here. It's pure shell, so it's, it's like a, a calcium-rich fertiliser just being naturally sprayed every, every year. And you create this very, very thin turf layer, which supports this incredible species mix of, of wildflowers and, and, and then obviously the, the insects and things that, that thrive on that too. I will sing a song of love to the one who first loved me. 
Minister of Pitlochy Church in Scotland until she retired last Easter. Today, Mary tells the story of Jane Haining. Yesterday was the anniversary of the death of Jane Haining. And who was she, you might ask? Well, Jane was a farmer's daughter from the village of Dunscore in Dumfries and Galloway. who went on to become a matron and a teacher in the Scottish Mission School in Budapest. 
a school for Jewish and Christian girls, a mix of boarders and day pupils. Jane was home on leave when war broke out in 1939 and she returned to the school immediately, knowing and understanding the threat that her Jewish pupils were going to face. Over the course of the next four years or so, the Church of Scotland and her family and friends repeatedly begged her to return home. But she refused, saying it was her Christian duty to remain in her post and protect her girls. She famously wrote, If these children need me in days of sunshine, how much more do they need me in days of darkness? Jane had tried her best to protect the Jewish girls in her care during the Second World War. She kept the law that demanded she saw a yellow star on the girls' clothes to identify them as Jewish, but she wept as she sewed those yellow stars onto their clothes, and this became one of several charges against her when she was arrested by the Gestapo and eventually transported to Auschwitz, where she died in July 1944. Jane Haining, in everything, did to others what she would have wished them to do to her. She stood by her girls, cared for them, fed them from meagre rations, protected them, and she died because of it. She is the only Scot to be named righteous amongst the nations at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, Israel's memorial to victims of the Holocaust. joys and for the sorrows, the best and worst of times, for this moment, for tomorrow, for all that lies behind. Fears the crowd around me, for the failure of my plans, for the dreams of
For this, 